1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, and 4, 12 through 19. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, good morning, Kingdom Vineyard, and it's a pleasure as always to be with you today to share the word with you. And as you can tell from our scripture reading, we have made a pivot from the Psalms into 1 Peter, and this is a pivot on purpose. Uh, our pastor, Jim, has been praying about what's next for our church, and he has felt led to the book of 1 Peter for a variety of reasons. I asked, him about this, I asked him about this this past week to hear what he had to say, and a few things he said were these. Um, he wants, for those of us who are old hands at being Christians, to be reminded of our core truths, to be reminded of what it is that we're really on about. And he wanted those of us who are new to this or who are maybe testing the waters of Christianity to get a sense of the basics for what we're on about. And he feels like First Peter may fulfill this task for us. And so here we go. It falls to me, then, to give us an overview of the book, to give you a sense of what's going on in First Peter, to give you an introduction to the whole text as a, as a base. And I'm going to do this today in four brief ways. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about who Peter was. Next, we'll talk about the people to whom Peter was writing, who is his audience. And third, I'll talk about some main themes. And then lastly, and very briefly, we'll talk about some of the things I think this means for us. And I'll try to do this without stealing the thunder of any of our subsequent preachers. You're going to hear some great sermons in the coming weeks from other people on these topics. I'm just giving you the overview and the framework. So let's pause, uh, not pause, let's begin by talking about who Peter is and uh, who is this guy. And as you know, probably, I hope, that he was one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 original followers of Jesus. He was a fisherman by trade. Uh, and think of an ancient fisherman. He probably had calloused, rough hands, used to holding nets and hauling them. They would work overnight and catch fish and then bring in the fish in the morning. Uh, it was hard and laborious work. He was a fisherman along with his brother, Andrew. So Peter and Andrew worked together and then they both became disciples of Jesus. We know from the text that Peter is married. He has a mother-in-law, but we don't know what happened to Peter's wife. She vanishes. Who knows? Uh, we don't know if he had kids or not. 
Originally, his name was Simon, or Simeon, after one of the twelve tribes. But he's given this nickname by Jesus. In Aramaic, it's Cephas, but it becomes Petros, or Rock, or even just kind of Rocky. His name is Rocky, in some ways. And it seems that Jesus gives him this name not only because he's solid, but also because he might be a little dense. This seems to be the case. Now, Peter is often the spokesman for the Twelve, and so when the Twelve has something to say, it seems like they nudge Peter, and then Peter's the one who goes up and makes the question of Je- asks the question of Jesus or does the thing. He acts on their behalf very often. This has led to a reputation of Peter being uh, foolhardy or always putting his foot in his mouth or always making mistakes, but most likely all of the Twelve disciples are foolhardy, and Peter was just the nominated idiot of the day. I think this is more likely the case. Now, Peter's the biggest voice in following Jesus, but he's also the biggest letdown when Jesus when he denies Jesus three times. Again, I want to remind you that all of the disciples, except John, abandoned Jesus. So we shouldn't be too hard on Peter, drawing him out from the hole and saying, making an example of him. I don't think that's what it's about. <clears throat> After the resurrection, Peter spends time in Jerusalem with the disciples. But according to the tradition, he ends up in Rome. Uh, 1 Peter 5.13 gives us a clue. He says, she who is in Babylon sends you greetings. Now, uh, Babylon is very likely a cipher for Rome. Babylon, bad guy in the Old Testament, Rome, bad guy at the moment. And uh, we have to remember that at the time Peter is doing this stuff, Nero is very likely the emperor, and there's some either bad stuff happening or bad stuff about to happen. So Peter is eventually martyred, we believe, in about AD 64 during the persecutions of Nero after the Great Fire. Um, And he, of course, crucified on an upside-down cross by reputation. So he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord, and so it's better that I be crucified upside-down. And um, this has always struck me as odd when you see, like, people who pretend to be Satanists holding, like, upside-down crosses and stuff, and they think somehow they're disrespecting Jesus. They're just highlighting Peter. I don't get it. It's weird. Anyway. Uh, Later tradition, of course, identifies Peter as the first pope. But it is very interesting to note that in the history, it is James, the brother of Jesus, not James, one of the twelve, but James, the guy from the outside, who ends up being head of the church in Jerusalem, to whom Peter submits. Uh, We know that Peter has a dust-up with Paul, recorded in Galatians, regarding how Jewish new Christians are supposed to be, and that Peter comes out looking the worst for that. And so Peter has to back down to Paul. Now, I point these things out, not to put Peter in his place, but to kind of frame Peter freshly for us. If Peter is a patron saint of anything, He's the patron saint of not always getting it right. And not just that, but of not getting it right, but then being the one who has to make it right. With this in mind, I think we can remember that Peter is called by Jesus the foundation of the church. Now, in one sense, this is absurd because Jesus is himself the foundation of the church. But Peter is a model for that foundation, at least as we follow him, because he's always getting it wrong and having to make it right. I suspect this is an important lesson for us as well. If we are to be the church, like Peter is, it is not as important that we be right as it is that we have a heart to always make it right. Food for thought. So that's Peter, one of the twelve. Whom is Peter writing in this? Well, these are the verses we read. First Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. These are, in the first place, residents of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. All of these, all these cities fall in modern-day Turkey. And then there's some other words that help us, like the word 
Aliens. Aliens. People who don't quite fit. Sojourners. Travelers. Temporary residents. Uh, my translation has the word scattered, but this is probably the wrong word. Here it should be the word dispersed. Placed in widely divergent locations, in some ways evoking the idea of seed dispersed in a field. Uh, we get a clue to their relationship to Peter in a verse like 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them, uh, the messengers, that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, Peter didn't preach to these people personally. He may not even know them personally. He's writing to strangers. Unlike Paul, who writes letters to people with whom he spent years and years of time, Peter may not have a specific relationship with this group. It's interesting. Now, from our reading of 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, which is also read this morning, this group is also undergoing some kind of persecution, a fiery trial they're dealing with. This is very likely a local persecution and not a general empire-wide one, although possibly general, because Nero's in the background. And their suffering is the explicit occasion for this letter. This is the reason it's been written. Peter has heard about difficulties being experienced by Christians in Asia Minor, and he's written a letter to encourage them. What we have is that letter. Now, a brief note about letters in the ancient world. Uh, in the first place, letters were a representation of the person. It was a cipher for me. So if in the ancient world I wrote a letter and sent it to you, when the letter was read aloud in your presence, it was meant to be as if I were in your presence as well. And so Peter means for this letter to have a kind of presence with him. Uh, to, to read a letter from Peter is to have Peter with you. We should remember that all reading in the ancient world was done aloud. It's always done um, with... You always speak aloud. You never read in your head. People who read in their heads are thought odd. And so um, the letters speak to the ear and not to the mind. You're hearing the voice of Peter read by whoever is reading the letter. Uh, third, letters are passed from place to place. And so very likely, Peter very much intends for this letter to be read as his voice in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, as if he himself had made the journey between these cities. And these are just some things to keep in mind about this. And now it's arrived in St. Andrews, and we are hearing it read to us as well in the voice of Peter. So those are the first two things. Who is Peter? The apostle. Uh, who is he writing to? Struggling Christians in Asia Minor. And now what are the main themes? Third question. What are the main themes of the book? I think there are three, broadly speaking. Um, one of them is a theology of exile. The other is a theology of identity. And the third is a charge to obedience. And I'll deal with each of these briefly now without stealing any of the thunder of the good preaching that's about to follow on all these things. So first, a theology of exile. Followers of Christ are exiles in the world. Strangers, aliens, sojourners, people without a home. To become a follower of Christ is to find yourself displaced in the world, to find yourself kind of homeless. Now, in my own way, I represent this. I'm an American. I'm of Puerto Rican descent. I spent 12 years living in Canada. I worked in two churches, which were predominantly Vietnamese and Chinese. Um, I now live in Scotland. I have no permanent home, no permanent address. I have things in three different countries. I'm about to finish a PhD where I will be homeless, jobless, nationless, and penniless. And to be honest, with Christ, this is no big deal. This is kind of par for the course of being in exile. But without Christ, it looks like a form of insanity. Um, <laughs> there's a fascinating shift in exile in the language of the Bible with respect to exile. Exile is, of course, fundamentally to be displaced from your home, to be forcibly removed from your reference points, your comforts, your relationships, your favorite foods, your people, the places you were born and raised in your memories. 
Exile is the most common punishment for people in the, in the Old Testament, from Adam and Eve being exiled from the garden, to Israel being exiled in Egypt, to Israel being exiled from their land as punishment later on. Um, exile is always bad. But suddenly, in the New Testament, the strangest thing happens. Exile becomes kind of good, and this is what's odd. Scattering, where before it was the scattering of um, a crown from a scorpion. The word for scattering is scorpizo. So it's it's like you see a scorpion, everyone runs away. Just to be scattered is to be this kind of like fleeing and flight and wrong. Suddenly becomes the scattering of seed, like tossing seed on a field. Instead of being homeless, now we are planters, bearing the seed of the gospel wherever we are sent. So the theology of exile, in other words, takes the punishment of the Old Testament and renders it a mission for the New Testament. You are not scattered in punishment, but in hope, not to remove you from home, but to accent the fact that in Christ your home is with him and him alone. We take our home with us wherever we go. I'll let other preachers deal with this later on, but there are some real challenges here, and I'll just lay one on you right now. To the degree that you are sold out for this world, for your country, for your love of place, for your love of things, for your local comforts, to that same degree, you run the risk of compromising your loyalty to the kingdom of God. Comfort in this world is in some way set against your home in the next, or at least in the kingdom of God. As it says, this world is not my home. Now, that's the theology of exile. This is something that runs throughout Peter. Second is a theology of identity, a theology of identity. To a people who are scattered in this way, Peter speaks words of identity. You are a royal priesthood, a holy temple, a people called and chosen by God. You might feel homeless, unknown, and ostracized by your neighbors, but God Almighty knows you, calls you, and loves you. You are very precious to him. Now, Peter works out these images of identity in a variety of ways, but two in particular seem prominent to me in the letter. One is temple, and the other is family. Temple and family. Peter stresses quite strongly that as members of Christ, you are members of Christ's temple. You are the temple. And this is a pretty astonishing thing for a first century Jew to write, for whom the temple had been previously that place above all places where God's presence was experienced. Now, in exile from that place, no longer bad exile, but as purposeful exile, you have become that temple. The presence of God now rests in you. The worst part of exile in the Old Testament was the exile from the presence of God. But now though exile, we retain God's presence. It is impossible to be homeless when God's presence rests in you. Now, of course, it doesn't rest in you alone. And this is very important. It rests in you as a community. Nobody alone is the temple. We are bricks and supports, and tapestries, and lampstands, and I am terribly sorry, but some of you are boot scrapers. But we all have a job to play in the temple. And now this leads in some ways to the second prominent image of identity, that of order in the family, of the household. Peter returns again and again to the images of family order and management, especially in his words to slaves. Now, I'm going to let others disentangle the complex world of ancient slavery, but Above all else, you must remember that it bears little resemblance to the racially-based slavery of the modern colonial world. Slaves in the ancient world could become slaves on purpose, and they could leave slavery at will by purchasing their freedom. We must remember that we have to slough off a great deal of our cultural baggage when reading ancient books, otherwise we will misread them. Uh, but I will let other preachers do with that in turn. Okay, a theology of exile matched with theology of identity, and within this is a charge to obedience. And this runs parallel to both those themes. 
for the individual, the individual in relationships, for the household, wives, and for slaves. Now, I think Peter focuses especially on slaves because he believes that they, by extraordinary obedience, have the power to change the hearts of their masters. He's also writing to the most powerless group of all. But this is to get ahead of the text, and others will have to deal with this. I will note briefly only one passage, which is 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I'm not going to comment on this passage now, other than to observe that in Peter's thinking, our obedience sets us apart from our former lives. Obedience is the thing that sets you apart from who you used to be. It binds us to the holiness of God and marks us irrevocably as his people. All those scattered, we have a very high call to be like God in all that we do. Now, as I wrap up this from this morning, I want to talk about First Peter and us. We've had this, we talked about who Peter was, and we've talked about um, to whom he was writing, and we've talked about these three themes, the theology of exile, of identity, and the charge to obedience. And maybe we can summarize First Peter in a sentence this way. Peter, a messy apostle who didn't always get it right, but always works to make it right, to struggling Christians in Asia Minor, remember that you are called for exile for a purpose. Remember who you really are, the temple, and make a steady effort at obedience. Maybe this is a helpful summary of the whole book. It is now, perhaps more than ever since the time of the early church, that we are a people in search of identity. A people who, perhaps most ironically in all the ages, in a globalist world with access to more information than ever before, that we just don't know who we are. We need Jesus to solve this puzzle, to breathe new life into identity, to strengthen the weakness of our inner persons. We need Jesus more than ever before for this. It seems to me that we need this message now just as much as those Christians in Asia Minor needed it then. Not that we are undergoing anything like a general persecution. Ours is an age in which the dangers drift more towards irrelevance than real opposition. It is not that we will be persecuted so much as silenced and ignored. All the more reason to attend to the words of a slave of Christ Jesus, who spoke to other slaves, powerless, silenced persons, charging them to awaken through their Christ-like obedience in their persecutors to a greater knowledge of God. May this be our experience together in the coming months as we go through 1 Peter. So let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the witness of the Apostle Peter and for his character and what he leads us into. And I pray that we hear his voice and that we will be challenged to respond to it in the obedience appropriate to our time. I pray for your spirit to convict us, to lead us and guide us into a greater and greater holiness that we may be, we may be like you. These things I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.